Welcome to TDS Lowdown. My name is Henrik Setra. The digital society, the era of big data, the age of AI. New technologies are an everyday part of modern living, to the joy of some and to the chagrin of others. Today we focus on one specific area of life, a relatively large area for most of us, namely work. Technology has always been a key part of working. We produce technology through work, we use technology to work, new technologies create new opportunities for work and make others obsolete. We focus on one particular aspect, however, which is how new technologies are used to observe, control and make work more effective by employers, but also by workers. Something I'm particularly interested in is how new technologies enable a form of subtle control, a form of control that is both highly effective and close to imperceptible. If employers can use technology to achieve such control, they might, for example, relax the harder forms of control while not really losing control at all, and perhaps even gaining control, loosening the yoke, so to speak, in order to gain control. Well, we need some expert guidance through these issues, and who better to guide us through these issues than today's guest? So, let's go. So, today's guest is Christina Kolkloff. She's a fellow at the Royal Society of Arts, a member of numerous boards, expert groups, committees related to issues of AI, equality and work. She's an expert on the future of work, the future of workers and politics of tech. And she created the Why Not Lab, dedicated to improving workers' digital rights. And that's what we'll be discussing today, at least in part. So, if we go and just start with the broadest sort of question here. Technology in the workplace and the future of work. Why should we care, Christina? (laughs) Hi, Henrik. It's great to be here. Why should we care? Well, to be honest with you, and without wanting to sound too doomsday-ish and and black mirror-ish, but I actually think the introduction of digital technologies into the workplaces right now, in the current form it is taking, is one of the largest threats to our human rights, our rights as workers, our freedoms and autonomy. And the reason why I'm saying this is is sort of manifold, but one of them has to do with the fact that a lot of these technologies are ungoverned, they're unregulated, that they're being deployed with great haste for reasons which have not so much to do with the technology, but more to do with the market or the competitors are using this, or I've been told by the vendor that this will increase our productivity and efficiency. So I'm going to go ahead and use this without the employers having done their homework before, i.e. looking at what could be the consequences of using these tools? Can we adapt the algorithms if they cause harms? what's in the small print, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So that's one, but uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, because that's uh, kind of without the employers doing their kind of due diligence, so to speak. Yeah. So is this mainly on um, employers or on regulators? Or if you kind of just take that kind of in your perception, both. who's at fault here? Yeah, <laughs> both. Yeah, um, both. And and I work uh, and sit, as you said, on, on several advisory boards and, and of those in multilateral organizations. 
And I have to say, I am particularly concerned about our government's lack of will really to cooperate around the regulation of algorithmic systems slash AI. Um, so that's one major thing. The other thing that I'm seeing is that both business leaders, but also politicians, simply do not know enough about these technologies to really regulate as, as, we, as we need. And, and, you know, with that, I mean, if you don't understand how algorithmic profiling or how the commodification of citizens and workers is actually taking place, if you don't understand the subtleties in the small print between who has the right of data access, control, analysis, and so forth, well, then you also don't know how to govern in the workplaces or regulate at a national or in the United States state level. So tech companies are really utilizing, in, in my view, this general lack of competencies. Um, and this is very dangerous. Yeah, exactly. You speak about our government. Uh, is there any government in particular? Uh, is there anyone that's better than others, for example, or is this kind of across the board? Well, I think I think it's across the board. I mean, some governments are trying to take the lead, uh, but many are settling with AI guidelines or, you know, signing up for the OECD AI principles, which are fine. But you need to be able to enforce these. And it's the moving from principles of good ethics to the practice. It is that step which is so crucial and which proves if you really can turn words into action, uh, this will prove their competency level. And unfortunately, I, I don't see enough action. No, exactly. Now, what do you think about the EU kind of there? they are portrayed and portray themselves as kind of a forerunner in kind of being stronger, being tougher on AI, on these kind of new technologies. Uh, how do you perceive um, current movements well, on the I mean, EU side? Yeah, I mean, I have to bow to the fact that the EU took the initiative with the General Data Protection Regulation uh, and really became forerunners on that. Now, the GDPR, as it's called, we can criticize that for uh, numerous things but it has set a global standard for what is good data protection. And there is no other regime or data protection regulation in the world, which even uh, reaches the GDPR's knees, so to speak. Now, what surprised me with the, e the draft EU AI Act, uh, which is on the table right now, is firstly, again, great, they want to do this. It is necessary and needed. But why did they move to a risk-based approach from the GDPR's rights-based approach? So this is, you know, it's not good enough. The current draft that's on the table now is full of gaps, full of holes. And, and But that said, uh, thank goodness the Commission is actually focusing on this. Yeah, perfect. Before I move on to more substantial issues here, I just want to ask because it, it strikes me when I read your work and when I follow your work, which is of great interest to me and very inspirational, that you just, you just don't kind of, you don't just care academically. There's, it's just not that you have a kind of an academic interest in the potential dangers of tech, right? You seem to work for change, engage in change, engage politically and engage in unions. Could you tell me a little bit about where this comes from? <laughs> so yeah, you have to go back into my history. I mean, I'm brought up in a very politically aware family. 
and one who, who literally fled uh, Margaret Thatcher's England and moved to Denmark uh, simply because my dad uh, just could not live in this very class-based uh, society in which the UK was. Now, this has always led me to, to want to focus on and defend those who are most marginalized. And as life's um, you know, twists and turns took me, this became a focus on the labor market and workers, and since then on, on the role and the impact of digital technologies on our rights as workers, but also citizens. So for me, the union movement is, you know, the class struggle, so to speak, between management and labor uh, takes various forms in different countries. In the Scandinavian countries, it's a very consensus-based relationship, very cooperative. Uh, we agree to disagree, uh, so to speak, where in other countries, this is more of a boxing relationship. If I win, you lose. It's more antagonism in there. But the, it is necessary that organized labor exists. Without it, and we can see that in places in the world where unionization rates are very low, the degree of exploitation of workers is extreme. And the inequality in society follows that. So this is why I've always had this interest, and, and especially in, in the labor market. Yeah, exactly. And if we, if we turn to the labor market, and let's just go with an example. Uh, where I work, for example, for the last couple of years, work has mainly been conducted through digital platforms, right? We work jointly on documents on a server. Uh, we message through the same platform. We email through the same provider. We do video conferencing, everything kind of on the same platform. On our computer laptops, sure, from work, but also for many of us on our home phones, which we incidentally have to register and kind of authenticate in order to kind of get access to company servers on our private phones. And by that also allowing kind of the company to get access to our private apps and everything, right? At least in part, not extremely perhaps, but in part. And Microsoft is one company who provides all these services in one package, right? And when one thinks about it, the amount of information gained is quite immense. So how, do, how does kind of these kind of everyday examples for most people now relate to kind of issues of worker privacy, surveillance, these kinds of issues? I think, I mean, you're touching on something so important. We, if you just look back, and now I'm old enough to have been young uh, before the smartphone, right? But if you think about it, everything digital, so from your smartphone to your smart speakers, to your credit cards, to your mobile banking, mobile public or, or you know, digital public services and all of that. Everything we do in the digital world is creating data. And we have never reflected on this. You know, when we suddenly, my generation went from having mobile phones, you had to have two hands to hold, to getting the ones that were small and they had a colored screen, to suddenly these new versions coming out that had these things called apps. You know, we got seduced into this digital world. And this was deliberate. The amount of money these tech companies are spending on addicting us, on gamifying us, on making us become more and more dependent on their services. Because, yes, they are, in inverted commas, you can't see me, this is a podcast, but they are smart. So Tim Wu uh, is a brilliant commentator. He wrote an op-ed in the New York Times some years ago. 
which he called the tyranny of convenience. And how we have, you know, suddenly become so dependent on these tools because they're really handy, right? In your example, everything is on the platform, everything is accessible from anywhere. And this is really convenient rather than you having to have a little disk where you save your files and then when you go home, want to work, you know, you have to bring it out and then you end up with 15 different versions and all of this. But that convenience has come at a price. It has come at the price of our data, our locations, where we are, what we shop, what we do, what we don't do. Your phone knows if you ever go to the gym. Your phone knows if you ever go for a run. You know, so it is the data that we are giving away due to our dependency uh, on these tools and, of course, our lust for them because they make our lives, in inverted commas, convenient. Hmm. Yeah. And if it's going to go with that, because it's convenient for sure, and we work more effectively as a consequence, at least uh, when everyone was forced to home offices, right? But do we know anything about what employers use this data for? Because we might just forget that data is collected and gathered in the process of kind of working effectively, right? This kind of disconnect between it allows us to do things, but at the same time, a lot of data is produced. And that relates to Zubov, for example, the kind of surplus data, this kind of the back end of this whole system, if you, so to speak. And uh, every week, for example, I get an email from my uh, employer kind of revealing what sort of data they gather because they say, last week you were so-and-so productive. Last week you, you networked so-and-so much, right? Because all this information is there, yeah. but it's only kind of drips and drops here and there, revealing kind of how this information is used. Do we know anything about how companies use this sort of data from these sort of platforms? <laughs> That's another great question. The short answer is no. No, <laughs> we don't know <laughs> now. Uh, but also, if I can be a little bit cheeky here, mm. your question needs to be added with mm. a do we know how the employers and the tech owners yeah. use our data? Mm. Now, there's two things there. And this is also why in the labor market, we can't just no longer talk about the management labor relationship. We have to talk about tech vendor developer management labor relationship. You know, there's suddenly a third party in our relationship here. Now, to give a really you know, good example, many people listening to this probably have a Fitbit or know somebody who has. Now, these Fitbits, they help us do our 10,000 steps a day and they might tell us, you know, oh, you're faster today than you were a month ago or whatever. Now, they are giving us the tip of the iceberg. When you get that information or you get your emails, oh, you were this and this productive last week, you're just getting a slice of the data that they have collected on you. And this is a way, again, of gamifying you, right? making you more addicted. Oh, wow, this is cool. I'm better today than a month ago. What the data, now let's take the employers, for example. What data do the employers have access to? Have they followed, in this case, the GDPR and told you about the, the, the purpose of their data processing? What do they do after that with the data? Do they rebundle it, repurpose it? For example, do they use your email activity in your, the, your performance evaluation, for example? Uh, or if you are, you know, um, a home care worker and you have location tracking for your health and safety, is that data repurposed and used to evaluate whether you are efficient or not? 
that's one thing. But then pertinently, all of the employers introducing these third party systems, have they read the small print? I.e. what do the, the tech developers or owners, what rights do they claim? around using, repurposing, rebundling, profiling on all of this data. And it is here that we have, due to the lack of governance, enormous questions and very few answers. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at this problem as well, because in Norway, for example, GDPR applies, right? And labor law applies, which is quite strong here, as opposed to other parts of the world. Is this... Uh, is there kind of this um, split between developed, uh, developing, least developed countries, for example, here? Is this far worse other places in the world than here? In terms of kind of maybe less tech intensive, but at, at the same time least protected? Do you have any kind of perceptions of kind of well, where, where this problem is worst? It's worse everywhere. Now, you see, in Norway, in, in, you know, you have a fantastic uh, voluntarily governed labor market through the labor market parties and all of this, which is great. You have rights, but for you to claim your rights, you need to know whether they're being violated. And due to the lack of competences, both from the side of labor, but also management, we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what to look for. If, for example, management hasn't informed the workers that they're using an automated hiring system or an automated scheduling tool or any other form of surveillance and monitoring, then, you know, the workers, of course, don't know that they should be maybe looking for patterns of discrimination or unequal distribution of working time or whatever. So you might have the rights in Norway but do you have the competences and the knowledge to actually check whether those rights are being respected or abused? And here across the world, now I train unions and workers from all regions of the world. Here I have to say there is a very low level of knowledge and appreciation and competences around the inner workings of digital technologies amongst the workers in unions. Now, this is no surprise because they've never been taught before, right? So, so there again, yes, if you are, for example, in the United States where workers have very few protections, you are doubly exploited. You're exploited because of the technologies and you're exploited because no matter what those technologies do, you hardly have any rights uh, to fight back. Mm. Uh, yeah. In terms of labor unions, how are these kind of getting along and developing? You mentioned that there is too little competency here, but is it, uh, yeah, is it uh, getting kind of going in the wrong direction? Is there enough awareness of this now and are people kind of getting on track and kind of getting up to speed on this uh, in your experience? Luckily, yes. Yeah. <laughs> A lot has happened. Now, if I look back on when I started working on all of this, um, let's, you know, it's eight years ago. People were looking at me when I was speaking and going, oh, science fiction, uh, dystopia, uh, black mirror, you know, they were sort of saying, oh, this is insignificant. This is such a small part of our labor market. We have many other struggles to deal with, you know, but that has changed. And I think the majority of unions today now realize that they have to be engaged in this. Many are getting engaged in this. And this uh, is wonderful and, and very, very necessary. 
I think we need uh, one or two more years before that competency has also led to changes in the unions, how they operate, what they do, what competencies they have available. Hmm. But uh, a lot is happening. And, and thank goodness for that. Yeah. How do you see um, kind of um, does this these new technologies? As I said, an introduction technology has always been a part of work. It's always been kind of involved in work. Uh, does these new technologies, if we talk about big data and AI, for example, change anything fundamental here, or is this just a kind of prolongation of the eternal struggle between labor and management and now also yeah. tech companies? Is that tech company part, for example, something new here, or kind of how do you see this? Yeah, again, like you, you're putting your finger right on the spot there. So I've heard a lot of both unions and employers say, ah, oh, you know, this, this technological change is no different from when we went from the typewriter to the computer or whatever. You know, don't be so technologically scared, you know, you're a Luddite or whatever. And people who usually say that, they're saying that to hide, I think, uh, both their fear, but also their incompetence. But as well, they want to persuade us that everything is going to be okay. It's not. This time is different. And the reason for that is the, the, the depth and the breadth of the intrusion, so to speak, into our lives of these digital technologies. Going back to what we spoke about before, you know, the data extraction, the profiling of us, which is having an effect on, do you see a job advertisement even when you're looking online? Can you get a bank loan? Are, are, will your insurances increase in price because they think you are somehow off the norm? You might be overweight or you, you know, might have a worse education than the, the average and so on. So the, the depth and the breadth of this is what makes this technological change so much different. And, and here I want to say, uh, you know, back in 1919, at the end of the First World War, world leaders came together and signed the Treaty of Versailles. I think Article 427 in that says that labor should not be regarded merely as an article of commerce. Now, that was repeated in the Declaration of Philadelphia at the end of the Second World War, the establishment of the International Labour Organization. Now, Article Number One states that labor is not a commodity. Now, what they're saying there is that labor should also be treated with respect, have their social rights, da 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 da. Now, my question to everybody today is are we betraying history? If we are turned into nothing else but data points, you are no longer Henrik or, you know, you are the result of those productivity emails you get uh, and so forth. Well, then we are becoming commodified. And this sort of turning us into numerous data points at the expense of our personalities, our life stories, you know, who we are, our desires, dreams, wishes, this is fundamentally what is at stake here. Mm. We are becoming really in this tech world, nothing else but the result of our data points. And this connects incredibly well to last episode's Dane, who visited me, Gree Hasselbalk, which talked about the destiny machines, right? This yeah. is kind of right back to that episode. Yeah. 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 Oh, it was amazing. I'm so yeah. happy you've spoken to her too. Yeah, yeah definitely. It's great. Yeah. 
And if we move to surveillance, because I know this is kind of an issue where we might have an argument. So let's just see if we can find out. Uh, surveillance can indeed be about control, right? Getting control, making sure people work, making sure they don't kind of skip work and go out practicing instead of working because you gain control through technology and surveillance. But it can also be a productive technology. If you go back to political economy and Marx, for example, we see how kind of kind of keeping watch of things, surveilling things is also about improving things, making things more effective, making things more productive, right? Yeah. So it's not inherently only about controlling people, but also about improving processes, for example. That's one argument being made about surveillance, right? We're not surveilling you because we want to control you. We just want to make things better. So that's one argument here. Use data to optimize. Uber, for example, might use data to optimize routes to provide more effective ways of transportation, these sorts of things. Now, what's your perception on what companies say and do when it comes to this kind of surveillance for control versus production sort of aspect? Yeah, so this is this goes right to the core, one of, of my uh, main concerns here. Yeah. So in this digital world of ours, there's tons of narratives, right? Oh, this, uh, these tools will, you know, make your life easier, convenient and so forth. Now, one of the narratives is that these tools increase efficiency and productivity. Now, you hear that time and time again. You hear business leaders say, oh, we're introducing this tool because it will make our work processes more efficient and so on. But do they? Now, this is always, you know, I'm the sort of trained to be the devil's advocate. And if you look at the OECD, for example, has released uh, figures on, or they do that periodically, on labor market or labor productivity. As you have an exponential growth of these introduction of these workplace technologies, at the same time as that labor productivity growth has declined. So it's not that labor productivity isn't increasing, but the growth rate has declined. So how do we explain that? Now, for me, firstly, when I hear this will make your, your processes more productive, my first response will be productive for whom? Productive at what? Now you take the Uber example, let's go back to that, right? Now it might be a more productive route, but it also might mean that the workers' lives are in danger or they have to drive at a particular sort of hazardous speed or something. Is that productive? If you measure danger, risk, accident, uh, you know, against saving uh, 30 seconds in time, is that really productive? Productive for what? Productive for who? And exactly the same with efficiency. Is this efficient on what measure, on what count? Now, you can take the Amazon fulfillment centers, for example, where we have heard all these horror stories of workers having to work so fast, so controlled, under very harsh conditions to increase their productivity. But is it productive when we also see the statistics for workplace accidents, burnouts, mental and physical harms, and so forth? So every time I hear that, I want to say, well, is it productive and efficient for what? For whom? On what timescale? If it's short term, oh, yes, we've got an increase in an amount of emails we could respond to or customers we could respond to. But if that then leads to bad workplace environment, a higher turnover of staff, physical, mental harms, 
then don't come and claim that that is productive nor efficient, unless you live in a very cynical world. So that's, that's one thing. And then again, if you look at the figures of the decline in the rate of productivity growth for, from labor, then you have to ask, what is this about? And there you said a key word, it's about control, power. If those who have the data, now we know this from big tech, right? But those who have the data are also those who can control the market, the competitors, but in the relation to workers, also workers. So for me, this is more a question of power and it's a question of control. Now, power over the narrative, you know, is how do we understand this modern world of ours? Power over um, really making sure that your opponent, be it a competitor, a worker or whoever, is disempowered, right? So, so I don't buy into the productivity and efficiency, uh, and I certainly don't do it blindly because um, mm. I have not seen the proof. No, exactly. And that, yeah, and that takes us to this imbalance of power, which has yeah. been a key concern of mine in relation to big tech in general, which also applies to work, right? And at, at these different levels here. What's interesting here is um, WeClock, which is uh, kind of a tool that's uh, you can read more about on. Um, your um, on your website uh, it says it offers a privacy preserving way to empower workers and unions in their battle for decent work provides insight uh, into presence or absence of decent or fair work working conditions or work-life balance so in sense a tool for workers to kind of fight back in a sense as i read it and it's interesting to me and i just want to ask uh, this sort of fighting back here it's sort of fighting back with the same tools and the same technologies and kind of increasing almost surveillance of yourself in order to arm yourself against surveillance. So is this some kind of vicious circle or is this a solution? <laughs> well, ideally, WeClock would not have to exist. Now, hmm. what WeClock does is provides workers with data about their working conditions. So everything from when did you enter into on a GPS uh, dot into your workplace? How many miles did you have to run throughout this uh, fulfillment center? When did you leave? What was the time between your shifts, for example? If you're a worker who's on your feet all day, did you ever get a rest break? Now, the difference between the surveillance from big tech and the surveillance, the self-valence through WeClock is, that nobody else has access to that data that WeClock is generating on your mobile device. We don't, as the developers, we don't, you know, we don't have access to that. So you can just look at your, you know, your daily insights and go, hmm, okay, my commute time was longer or my route as a home care worker was longer today or something. Uh, or you can share that information with, for example, your union. So what we decided when we developed this is okay, we need to provide workers and their collectives, their unions with data to fight back against what I call the monopolization of truth uh, that we're experiencing today. But we will not add to the surveillance. We're just giving workers control over data that is already being taken from them as they carry their mobile devices around with them. So that was our ethical consideration there. So no third party data snooping and no additional surveillance 
it is more giving the raw data, putting that into the hands of the workers. Mm. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's a kind of a temporary or not temporary, but at least kind of in lieu of a larger, more fundamental solution to this issue, we need to kind of do what we can with the technology. Well, we do. I yeah. mean, uh, uh, you know, going back to the balance of power right now, and, mm. and this is between big tech and governments, it's between those who have access to the technologies, the data versus the workers, the citizens. The balance of power right now is really tipping to an extent where the majority of us are victims to this, this super surveillance. So, so for me, it, it is pertinent. And I, I just want to give like a, a real life example. One of the, the guys who is part of the WeClock team, he was helping in the United States uh, a bunch of workers called shoppers. Now they are, you know, you can order online. I want you know, 10 cans of tomatoes, two liters of milk, da, da, da. They shop for you and then deliver what you asked for. Now the, the platform came out and said, we have introduced a new pay algorithm that ensures the workers are paid more fairly according to the time spent and so forth. And this was all over the US press. But Dan on our team, he created together with co-worker and uh, a machine learning tool that actually could test that algorithm. And what it turned out was that 41% of all of the shoppers were consistently paid less after the introduction of this new pay algorithm. Now, had Dan and co-worker not done that, the narrative of fairness would have been brought by everybody. It would have been uncontested when in actual fact the workers were consistently 41 percent of them consistently paid less so this is what we want you know for example with we clock if employers are saying in these COVID times yes we are abiding to all you know safety distances between workers and clients or between workers themselves well we'll be able to prove with we clock whether these two meters distance or meter distance is being respected or if employers are saying, oh, we respect working time regulations, well, with we clock, you can prove, do they? Mm. You know? Yeah. So this is this was the whole reason why we created WeClock. And exactly. I just want to add to that that WeClock is open source. Mm. We have no ownership uh, over it. It is out there for the community to use. Yeah, exactly. Is this kind of um, due to the lack of kind of algorithmic auditing, for example, the regulation of the introduction of algorithms, these sorts of things, would, would those kinds of tougher regulations solve some of these issues? That's kind of, there is no need now to kind of audit an algorithm. So, so anyone can do what you say that workers did, right? So there is a need for us ourselves to control it. Is that part of the problem now? Well, so let's take, because we're in Europe now, right? Let's take actually the rights that workers have, which I think they should start claiming. And they're enshrined in the GDPR. Now they, uh, for example, oblige the employers, if it's workplace technology, monitoring surveillance tools, to inform the workers of uh, the technology, to inform them of what data is being collected, for what purposes, where it's been kept, for how long, and so forth. But they're also obliged to conduct a so-called DPIA, a Data Protection Impact Assessment. Now, what is little known is that the predecessor to the European Data Protection Board, called the Article 29 Working Party, actually recommended 
that when an employer who's obliged to do a DPIA, when an employer is doing one of those or workplace related uh, tools, they should quote, uh, consult with a representative sample of the employees, end quote. Now, all the unions I've spoken to in Europe have never ever been party to a DPIA. So here, for example, there are certain rights and there is a possibility to enter into a conversation, a consultation around these digital technologies. But the GDPR falls very, very short on the legal obligation to co-govern these algorithmic systems. And this is you know, why I've developed a guide for unions to help them actually start that conversation uh, around, you know, with the employers to co-govern, not just from a risk perspective, so the risk of data breaching, the risk of hacking, cybersecurity, but from a rights perspective. What impacts are these tools having on individuals, groups of workers, on working time, well-being, and so forth? There's no template for that, right? Uh, but I'm actually working with a bunch of Norwegian unions around building the competencies, the model, the questions to start that very necessary conversation. Yeah, exactly. And that goes between kind of company and workers in general, I'd, I'd expect. So if you, if you take a small to medium sized enterprise, for example, introducing some sort of algorithm, they, would they not usually be purchasing or kind of applying something from big tech or some other sort of platform that, they, that they, even the employer doesn't really know the insights of the algorithm? Is that part of this problem? And how do you co-govern when you have these three levels? How does this apply? See, but again, excellent question. And there you said the three levels. You know, we have uh, an extra person in our little relationship here, right? We have the tech developers, the vendors, the employers and the workers. It is pertinent for liability responsibility uh, reasons and grounds. If an employer, even from a small company, buys an off-the-shelf solution, let's say a scheduling tool, that they understand and that they have governed that technology before it's brought into play, but also periodically as it's being used. Now, can you name any company who does that? No, nor can I. If they govern these technologies, as I said before, it's from a, a risk base, risk of hacking or whatever, or risk of data breach. But none of them have gone in and actually paid attention to the small print from this third party, the developers, the vendors, saying, have you done an impact assessment of this? Have you done a social or human rights impact assessment? What could be the potential, the unintended harms to certain groups of workers and so forth? Well, the answer to that is probably no, they haven't done that. But then the deploying company should say, if we detect any harms, do we have the right to, to, to ask you to change uh, the instructions to the algorithm? Now, I don't know any example of a company who has ensured they have the right to change the, the algorithms, right? I.e., they are blindly deploying a technology which could very well, and the majority do, have discriminative bias, etc., harms, yet they are blindly deploying them. So here from the workers' point, and this is part of the model that I've created, is that they ask into 
What are your arrangements around editing, blocking, manipulating the algorithm? Uh, how does the vendor, the tech owner, what rights do they have to our data? Can they repurpose it, et cetera, et cetera. So in that relationship between vendor and company and then the workers, we need far clearer uh, uh, declarations of, of responsibilities, liabilities, and so forth. For me, Henrik, it is unbelievable that so many companies are using these tools without having cleared what are that what is their responsibility, what are their liabilities around this. And the moment the unions really become capacity built to start asking those questions, you know, uh, things could start uh, looking very ugly because companies find out that they are responsible for things that they had no idea about. Exactly. Let me test an argument here because I'm, I've been working in consulting, right? And we do risk management, we do governance, risk and compliance, we work with internal audits. And uh, kind of one of the things I'm interested in and working on sustainable AI, AI, for example, is just kind of helping companies get in control of kind of how they use AI in kind of and the effects of the AI systems they use. And that would be kind of an integral part of what you're saying here, governing and understanding the risks and getting all of this kind of in kind of a system and process and kind of routines for controlling our algorithms, right? Yeah. Hmm. No, yeah. but can I just say something? Yeah, please. Because it's so interesting you're saying that. In all the governance models I have seen being created by experts, consultancies, and so forth, in workplace technologies, I have not seen any that say you have to consult with the workers. And for me, this is just unfathomable, right? If you are introducing a tool that is aimed at controlling, uh, surveying the workers, and you know in a country like Norway, for example, it is the shop stewards who have their ear to the ground, they know what's happening and moving and shaking inside the workforce. You have a tradition of dialogue. You have a tradition of cooperation and negotiation. Why then is, you know, to be frank, the, the, the only model I know which includes this dialogue and co-consultation is mine. Why is this not a natural part of the governance, the audit, the assessments of digital technologies? It just is mind blowing. Mm. And it's in there in the GDPR, as you say, for example. So, so it's, it's kind of, the system is kind of there in order to kind of implement it. Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, in the theory? GDPR in, by law, mm. it, it, the legal obligations of employees to inform the Article 29 Working Party, the European Data Protection Board, recommends that that is done in consultation with a representative sample of the employees. But then look at your labor market traditions in Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, Iceland, and so on. You have a tradition of consultation and dialogue, of negotiation, of collective agreements. And here, I fear, due to these models that are coming out, which are unilateral assessment of the potential impacts and harms of these systems, that, that why, uh, uh, why can we observe right now we're moving away from dialogue to this unilaterally defined risk or rights analysis? It, it is mind-boggling, and it, is, it's, it's, uh, it concerns me deeply. Mm. Yeah, and that's understandable. This is a great point. It's, uh, this is a truly intriguing discussion. 
If we move on to another point here, which I've been pondering lately in association with other issues as well, it's kind of the question of how to balance privacy against other legitimate interests of both society and government. For example, could less privacy or less privacy protection be good? In the sense that employees, for example, could potentially withhold or employers could withhold data on workers' conditions, for example, under the guise of kind of protecting privacy. Could the government demand insight and openness about data so that you don't need weak lock, for example? Could it, is there kind of is there a potential here for saying that kind of more openness and less protection of privacy could in fact lead to both less gathering of data because it would be open and you couldn't really do what we're doing right now if it was demanded to be open and could it be good for us to just know and see and yeah and would we just kind of reveal less about ourselves would we become more conscious of this it's just kind of a question that's not very specific i know but kind of any thoughts well hmm, uh so um right now with the privacy regulations we have big tech doesn't care right they are extracting this data uh, continuously from everything you're doing online to the documents you write to what you write in your documents. This is another unfathomable thing, right? That where unions are putting all of their secrets onto Google Cloud or Microsoft Cloud, right? Uh, where again, if they had read the small print, they would see they reserve the right to, to read these documents. Um, so they don't care about our privacy rights. They're taking the data anyway. There's 14 sensors on your mobile phone. We've become so addicted to these mobile phones, we don't go anywhere without them. The data is being taken. So for me, it, it's a false dichotomy. Mm. I can't say that word, yeah. that, that, that you are portraying there. Would mm. the removal of rights lead to more openness around the data? No, mm. it won't. <clears throat> because so much is being taken from us. And then the secret in all of this is how is it used? We know it's used to, you know, target advertisements, target particular jobs and so forth. But we also know that many of these profiles that are being made are used to limit our life and work opportunities, right? So what Shuzana Subov calls trading in human futures, i.e. the trading in these data profiles, and she calls for that to be forbidden, I totally agree with her on removing privacy rights is not going to help on that on the contrary so so for me maybe the question should rather be we know that all of this commodification this datification of, of society and work is a, a fundamental attack on our autonomy now autonomy is enshrined in human rights law you have the right to be free from manipulation Yet we are in this digital world being constantly manipulated. So I'm leaning more towards how do we bring to the forefront again our human rights and therefore our right to be human, right to be free from this manipulation, right to be who I am. So this for me would should be the core. You know, I'm sick and tired of all of these AI ethic principles saying, oh, you know, AI should serve the interests of people and planet. It's, it sounds wonderful, but they totally neglect then saying, how do we respect the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, our human rights? And mm. every abuse against that uh, means the technology should be taken off the market. 
Yeah. And AI for good and all these principles uh, usually kind of tend to, or a lot of them now kind of are aligned with the sustainable development goals, for example. And yes, you have kind of the protection of decent work, for example, in there. But as I've repeatedly kind of argued, there is no kind of discussion about privacy. There is no discussion about basic human rights in kind of the sustainable development goals themselves, even if it's in Agenda 2030. Have you kind of thought about how kind of useful the sustainable development goals are for well, kind of securing they, workers' rights? Well, they, they could be if, again, you claim them. And if you claim them on the basis of what is an absolute set of rights, which is are your human rights. Now, we can always debate ethics. Are your ethics better than mine, for example, right? They are inherently political. What is not political, what is an absolute, is the, are these human rights. And I urge governments to actually live up to what they have signed themselves uh, and ask, are these sets of rights, how are they being abused by digital technologies which are commodifying us as we've discussed before. So, you know, I really, I look back at a conversation I had with one of the previous uh, High Commissioners of Human Rights for the United Nations last year, and how I really got the fundamental belief we don't necessarily need new laws. We need to apply the ones that we have. But to do that again, you need to know that there is a connection between human rights and digital technologies, which again leads us back to this whole question of competencies. Hmm. This is great. And digital technologies, that's what we've been discussing pretty much. We've been discussing, I've been saying modern technologies, we've been saying digital technologies, we've been through kind of big data and AI. But if you say, kind of if you go to a bit more specifics, how does AI, which is kind of the primary technology being discussed these days, at least in some circles, how does this kind of fit into this whole picture? Is AI integral to the threats you perceive or is surveillance and data kind of the key issue, which is mainly compounded by AI? Do you have any kind of considerations so, regarding the importance of AI in all this? So I'm going to answer that in a roundabout way. Mm. Firstly, every I mean, there's a bad tendency uh, to call everything AI today, right? Mm. <laughs> and I think, you know, Kate Crawford, she was quite provocative recently when she said, uh, you know, there's nothing artificial and there's nothing intelligent about the current forms of artificial intelligence. Right? <laughs> so and I, and I want to hook on to that. But what is integral here is, as I said before, the depth and the breadth of this datification of work and, and society. That's one thing. Now, that is spurred by algorithms. Uh, this is why I typically call it algorithmic systems more than AI. But you have particular forms of AI, machine learning, where these algorithms are self-learning. We don't know why they recommend to hire you and not me, but that's the conclusion they've got to. And this black box, which many of you have probably heard about, this for me is the unacceptable part. You cannot have a policy on AI that says humans should always be in command, yet you accept the, the existence of a black box a logic where we don't know how a particular conclusion, which has a real life impact on people, has been made. So, so the way I'm sort of answering your question there is, number one, let's admit that these technologies have a power uh, 
a real impact in our world. And instead of fixating, oh, AI is there and the rest of us have to adapt, you know, let's wake up here a little bit and stop being so tech deterministic and say, we have real life problems, real world problems, climate change, inequalities, et cetera, et cetera. How can we apply this technology to help us and not how should we adapt to this technology because it somehow is a fixed point? Now, this is this is idealistic, right? This is the vantage point of, of how we perceive technology. I really object to this technology determinism that is sort of enshrined in most debates today. The last question I want to ask is, uh, what would be your suggestion to anyone listening here, um, wondering how should they use all this information, right? Um, sitting at work, perhaps, right now, listening to this, <laughs> this podcast, being disillusioned about kind of what's going on here. Is there, are there any th obvious actions kind of they could take as individuals, as workers? What do you recommend? What is your kind of guide so, to workers today? Yeah, so if you just take on an individual level, start the conversation with your peers, with your family. You know, should we have that Amazon Echo, that that uh, whatever they're called, uh, you know, Google Home, these smart speakers, should we really have them on well knowing that they're listening to us? You know, how can we now that we know there's 14 sensors in our mobile phone, you know, should we really have it lying next to us in bed whilst we're sleeping or doing other things we do in bed, you know, well knowing that these are surveillance tools, how can we limit the degree of surveillance? Use a VPN, for example, switch off your phone, make sure that you have a work phone if the employers have given you that, but also then a private phone. Don't store your private photos on your work phone and so on. So be a little bit more sensible. Around uh, workers, uh, here, you know, we have been sold the myth of empowerment by digital technologies, which has fragmented us. I think it's about time we all realize we are actually workers. And right now, these, these technologies are not empowering us. So collectivize, number one. And then the unions really build their capacity to start putting very clear demands on the table around data rights, around the co-governance of these algorithmic systems. Now, for the unions themselves, you know, and I was just uh, in conversation with a Swedish uh, newspaper about this last week, you know, put a strategy in place that, that defines what technologies will the union use so that they best can protect the integrity and privacy of their members. So maybe, you know, gradually move out of the Microsoft cloud, maybe start building decentralized server systems. You know, there's no reason why we should be giving all of our union secrets to the, the very companies who are out there spending the most on union busting. I mean, it's, it's a little bit ironic, don't you think? So, you know, in workplaces, really start asking the questions to management. What digital systems are you using? Can we please be party to the TPIA? Um, we would like to know how are you repurposing this data? And, you know, a union in Ireland did a great uh, negotiation where they got into their collective agreement a commitment from the employer that, that they would never sell data sets that included the workers' personal data. 
Now, this is a really anti-commodification clause, right? Which, again, here we have to start asking the questions. We don't know what we don't know, i.e. we want to know. Mm. What digital technologies are you using? Who designed them? What rights do the designers have? What rights do we have to edit, block, change these systems? And what red lines should we put in place to protect our human rights, our workers' rights? Yeah. And this goes even for kind of the, uh, even, even the best places for workers, right? Where we might trust both the government and our employers. Uh, don't just rely on trust, but ask and get kind of confirmation and get knowledge. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Henrik, there you said a very key word. Now, when I wrote my doctorate, that was all about the role of social capital in uh, multinational companies and in, in innovation. What is, excuse me, very clear in the Nordic region is this high level of generalized trust. Now, in relation to digital technologies, I'm beginning to ask uh, my union friends uh, here, is there a risk of overtrust? So that that generalized trust is meaning we're not asking the questions that we actually should ask. Is it, you know, is this generalized trust also a little bit naive? well knowing that a lot of these technologies are not designed in Norway or in Denmark or in Sweden or wherever. They're designed in countries with very different morals, norms, values, and so forth. Yet they're being deployed straight into your industrial relations systems, your labor markets. So if we overtrust, does that mean we can't imagine employers would introduce potentially harmful systems and therefore we're not asking? And I'm afraid the answer to that question is yes. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so the unions just have to ask. Mm. And let's hope we get, uh, sometimes at least get the answers we hope for, at least increasingly so if we keep on asking. But this, uh, this has been a thoroughly fascinating discussion and I thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Henrik, really, and, and best of luck. And yeah, let's continue the debate. Yeah, definitely. And keep up the good work. This is important work and it's very fascinating to follow you. So I recommend everyone do the same. Follow the Why Not Lab and follow Christina on Twitter and elsewhere. So thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to TDS Lowdown. You can find more episodes at tdslowdown.com. Follow the podcast on TDS Lowdown on Twitter. Please remember to subscribe and share. Thank you.